Hey, everybody. Welcome to Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and I'm so happy you're here with us. If you're just joining for the first time, I am a special needs mom, a special needs attorney, and a best-selling author. So please grab your coffee, and if you're like me, you might be listening in your car. I spent a lot of time in the car in my day. And please join us for some important discussions to help you thrive in this complex special needs world. Each week, we're going to chat with parents and experts, and sometimes parents who are experts, to offer compassionate advice for all stages of your life. These are the conversations you would have with your best friend if your best friend was an expert like me. Let's go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. So I am continuing on our journey here uh, in discussing what we need to do to get ready for the new year. And you know me, if you've been listening at all to my podcast these past two years, you know I'm all about the planning right? And this is the time of year that I kind of both love and hate. It's a good time of year to um, pull together and think about, okay, so what's been going on this past year? Let's take a look at what's worked, what hasn't worked, and what do we want to do next year to you know, get a better vision, uh, reevaluate, tweak some things that haven't worked, um, make things better, sometimes completely reinvent ourselves. It's funny, you know, when I was little, I had this best friend. His name was Frank. Frank, if you're listening, I love you so much. Miss you. Haven't talked to you in so long. He was the craziest dude, still is. um, But he had this really cool idea that Um, you know, we lived in the city and, um, so we grew up in East Boston and, um, we had these sewer grates that, you know, they're like manhole covers, right? You open them up and they, that's how the city workers would get down into the sewers underneath, underneath the sidewalks, underneath the streets. And uh, that's where all the sewage and the water would be and what have you. So these manhole covers, like, you know, called them the sewers, right? So he had this idea that he would be able to step on these, these sewer covers. And then when he stepped on it, he would like be able to just change himself <laughs> and be a different person. Really cool, right? It's a cool idea, you know, because who doesn't want to change into somebody else? I mean, especially when you're a kid and, you know, you get to this point where you like nothing about yourself. Everybody is insecure when they're a kid. Well, you know what I'm finding out as an adult? But many adults feel the same. Like, who among us is is that secure? None of us is very secure in ourselves. And One of the things about parenting a special kid, it's very unnerving. And um, the systems that we work within, you know, I don't know if they do this intentionally, but they are even more so unnerving. There, There are so many times 
in our lives when we are in situations where we're forced or facing so many multitudes of professionals that we feel like we don't know what we're doing. We're less than we are. So, um, you know, unaccomplished, we forget who we are. We forget that we are the expert. You know, I, for, I, I had forgotten so many times that I was the expert in Elizabeth, the expert in Elizabeth's Elizabeth-ness. And, you know, whether it was an IEP meeting or a meeting with all of the doctors at Children's Hospital or just, you know, whatever it might be, it, it, being this special parent was just unnerving to my confidence constantly. So who who wouldn't want to step on that sewer grate and change themselves in an instant? It was such a cool idea. I love it. So this time of year, I always get into the groove of wanting to take a look at, you know, what's happened all year long and think about ways to set a plan for having a great year in the next year. So I'm a planner and you know what? It's, it's served me well. It really has. And it's been good for my family and good for my kids. And it's helped me achieve little successes here and there. And as a person, I have never needed to be this big splashy success. Um, And I'm, I'm always trying to find gratitude for the small successes in my life, in my kids' lives, my family's lives. And I don't know if that does it for you, but at least for me, that's been, you know, my way forward for sure. So from around Thanksgiving through the new year, this is my jam. So Today, I want to talk to you about taking a look at legal decision-making for your person. So whether you're caring for somebody or this is you, and you're taking a look at legal decision-making for your team and how that fits into your life, now's a good time to take a look at the supports in place. And whether this is for decision-making today or for something that you're putting in place for the potential future, we have really kind of taken this decision-making model and turned it on its ear in the last few years. Um, Not just in Massachusetts where I live, but around the country. So I wanted to throw out a few ideas and have an important discussion with you today, which would give you maybe some some food for thought in taking a look at the plans that you have in place and making you maybe, you know, think through the model that you have in place in your plan. And then maybe you want to make some tweaks to it. So let's take a look at that and let's see, you know, if there's something that maybe sparks some, some thoughts with you. So there've been a lot of recent developments 
Absolutely. Um, the Britney Spears case certainly has been a big, big uh, event in legal decision-making, namely in the guardianship realm. Um, we certainly have been learning a lot through the pandemic, especially around sharing our stories. And, um, you know, I want to talk to you a little bit about the fundamentals of legal decision-making and what our options are so that you can have some foundation there. So let's talk a little bit about um, developments in Washington, and then I'll talk to you a little bit about what's been going on in my state, and maybe you can compare notes. So just this past year, the National Guardianship Network has proposed a guardianship bill of rights, which many organizations have signed on to. And that included a right to counsel, limiting guardianships where possible, person-centered planning and supported decision-making where possible, and better monitoring of guardianships to address abuse, and also including a court improvement program uh, around the country where possible. And in addition to that, Congress is also considering funding a national court improvement program. So, you know, many there, there are many detractors of a national court improvement program, and you can understand why that would be. Um, there are folks who do not trust the courts at a local level to use funding to solve guardianship problems. And states do vary widely on their guardianship rules and protections for incapacitated people. So there are some states who feel like they are much further along in their protections of people, and they feel like they might be lowering their standards rather than raising them. And then there are other states who are concerned about, you know, they, they don't have the funding that they might need to actually raise their standards. So there are a lot of concerns about having any kind of national bar set um, for state programs. There are so there's so much variation from state to state that trying to find a uniform rule or a uniform set of rules um, can feel overwhelming. So around the country, supported decision-making laws have been enacted in more than a dozen states. Uh, it started in Texas. Some people find that hard to believe, but yes, it started in Texas. Yay, Texas. Um, and more than a handful of other states have proposed laws at this time and are in the works, including in Massachusetts. We just um, had a, um, a hearing on our model law that we have proposed. And even before, long before the Britney Spears case, in 2011, uh, WINGS programs, that stands for Working Interdisciplinary Networks of Guardianship Stakeholders, <laughs> started a revolution of guardianship reform across the country. And why these WINGS programs were so revolutionary was because 
They are core community partnerships. They included stakeholders. That means they included people who were actually subjected to guardianships. And that inclusion of the people that were, quote, under protection was a novel idea in 2011. It's still novel today, 10 years later. And so this revolution of reform um, has been going on for the last 10 years. And this is a problem-solving forum, and it is consensus-driven. You know, it, it, they're a group of people that includes the courts, disability networks, mental health agencies, the private bar, meaning private attorneys, and, and so much more. Um, and a lot has been done with these um, WINGS programs uh, over the last 10 years. In our state, for example, in Massachusetts, our version of WINGS is the Massachusetts Guardianship Policy Institute, which began in 2015. And we've had uh, four statewide colloquia, which brought together network of guardianship stakeholders. And so much has changed here in our state since 2015. Um, including the fact that we now have a supported decision-making law in, in process. And uh, it's very exciting. Our law, our, our proposed law is very good and looking forward to um, talking to you about that a little bit today. So um, Let's talk a little bit about the Britney Spears case. Why did this case draw so much national attention? So I've talked about that a little bit before on the podcast, but you know, it I think you can imagine if this can happen to somebody like Britney Spears, what does this mean for us? I mean, I think really it make it can make a person very anxious that this could happen to anybody, right? Um, and I think that's why it drew, drew so much national attention. But why did it take so long for anyone to pay attention to, to her plight? You know, that is, I think, the key concern. So let's talk about what some of her key complaints were or the key complaints that came out of this case. She was deprived of reproductive rights and freedom. Um, she was unable to get the guardianship or conservatorship, they call it conservatorship in California, limited, meaning that it was a full plenary guardianship over every aspect of her life. She was unable to choose her own counsel. They picked her attorney for her. And the attorney that was appointed for her did not listen to her wishes, meaning that attorney wasn't representing her wishes, but more or less represented the wishes of the other stakeholders. Um, no freedom to communicate with whomever she chose. They took her phones from her and she had um, restricted access to communication. 
There was a lack of timely reviews of her case by the court. And she claimed court bias. Again, these were all her complaints, complaints of um, from coming from her side and an overall deprivation of civil liberties. So with that case, one of the you know, main key issues, and, and just to be clear, money in this case had a huge, huge part to play in all of this. Um, but that is not the only issue. I mean, this kind of case certainly happens to people who have no money. And there are guardianship abuses all over the country. And that is why there are WINGS programs and guardianship reform programs that are springing up all over the country. And there are supported decision-making laws being proposed and, you know, all sorts of reform um, proposals and, and guardianship forums and lots of conversation, especially in the last few years, because of the guardianship abuse that is, you know, finally being spotlighted out there. Now, that doesn't mean that guardianship is not necessary, and I'm going to get to that. But again, why did this case draw so much national attention? Well, you know, because it's Britney Spears. She's young, she's blonde, she's beautiful, um, but she's also out there performing and you know, doesn't seem like somebody who is, quote, incapacitated. What does incapacitated look like? If you can be out there in the spotlight working and earning millions of dollars, are you truly incapacitated? How can you need a guardianship and still be able to be functional at that level? It just raises so many questions. And also the questions that it raised, many states like ours in Massachusetts have already appropriately dealt with, for example, those right to counsel issues. Um, in Massachusetts, our counsel here are appointed by a board and their job is to listen to their incapacitated person, their client, and propose their client's wishes. It's not a best interest test. They're not out there to propose what they, the attorney, think is in the best interest of the client. It's what the client wants regardless of how unreasonable that is. Let's say that you have someone who wants to return to their home, but everyone 
in the case can see that that person cannot reasonably care for themselves. That doesn't matter. The attorney appointed for that client must propose and put forth their client's wishes to the court. It is not for the attorney to be the trier of fact. It is up to the judge to look at all the facts and decide what is in the best interest, right? And so, you know, it seems in the Britney Spears case that 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 role of that counsel got a little mixed up. And one, you know, thinks that because there was so much money involved, I think that attorney, it was reported, got paid like $900,000 in a year. (laughs) You know, uh, court-appointed counsel here doesn't get paid 1% of that, I think, or, you know, I don't know, maybe like a half a percent of that or even less. Um, So anyway, my point is that a lot of those abuses that came to light in the Spears case would not have happened in a lot of other states and probably wouldn't have happened if there wasn't so much money at risk. Um, speculating, but it's speculation that a lot of other guardianship attorneys have made. Um, again, you know, the the cutting off of communication is a common complaint that gets made in um, guardianship cases, in guardianship abuse cases. Um, the reproductive rights and freedom um, that is a case where in many states, you would have to go way above and beyond to prove that that was necessary. Um, And there would be a very high level of review before you would be allowed to do that in court. Um, And um, the timely reviews uh, in court is another thing that um, many Many um, guardianship abuse cases have uh, complaints about. So um, the Britney Spears case certainly did us a humongous favor by spurring on a lot of complaints that had been out there in individual jurisdictions for a long time and just, you know, put a spotlight on on areas of abuse and complaints that have been really just trucking along for for quite a while. Where are we going to get to with this? Well, I guess we'll see. So the next thing that I wanted to talk about was the pandemic and using our voices to really bring the message home. And so what have we learned from the pandemic? Why are our stories so important? Again, if you've been listening to me for a while, you know that I talk a lot about telling our stories and how telling our stories is so important. 
And one of the things that I've learned, and also from listening to all of you and working with my clients, is that many of the decisions coming out of the pandemic for people with disabilities and for their caregivers, many of those decisions were very top-down. There was a real lack of choice and no one was listening to our voices. So since many times stakeholders were not being asked to the table to solve problems that the disability community was facing, it's really time for us to talk about our experiences over the last two years. And I see that on a micro level. I'm seeing it, of course, on all the social media pages. But on a larger scale, it needs to get out there. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is, and I, I've been saying this in a few of my keynotes and my speeches that I've been giving that as caregivers and advocates and human service workers, family members, even as ourselves disabled individuals, we stand in the breach for the disabled community. We stand in that gap. Even though we stand in that gap, we are still not being asked about those experiences and to step in to help solve those problems. And our experiences regarding guardianship and decision-making matter. This must be a person-centered process. And I want to challenge you all to be thinking about this at this time of year as you're planning next year and the next few years. Um, as you're thinking about, okay, part of your estate planning process and what your, you know, guardianship or your legal decision-making um, um, plans are going to be for your loved one, you know, who's going to step in for caregiving, who's going to step in for legal authority, or whether it's you know, for you as a caregiver, whether it's for yourself, as you're thinking about who takes over for you if you're already in that legal authority, legal decision-making role, you must do this in a person-centered way. And so what does that mean to make this a person-centered process? Well, you have to develop a person-centered plan. And rather than looking at guardianship first, you have to consider what decisions your person can make and what areas need support and review the list of supporters that are available and preferred. And remember that the supported person is at the center of the team and their voice is the most important one. So. As I'm telling you about how through the pandemic, our voices were not heard, the most important voice of all is the person that we're seeking to support. And their voice is most often forgotten. So as we're trying to make this a person-centered process, we want to look at the range of decisions that need to get made. 
healthcare decisions, financial decisions, advocacy decisions, changes of residence, job selection, emergency medical decisions, crisis intervention, asserting legal rights, defending legal claims, hiring and firing providers, and monitoring services provided. Those are all the kinds of decisions that may need to get made. And you want to take a look at each and every one of those bundle and figure out where your person fits in or where you fit in and how you can and how you are making those decisions for yourself or how your person is making those decisions for themselves. And then you can take a look at the role of a clinical evaluation in this process. Is a clinical evaluation necessary for this person-centered process? That's a big no. It's not necessary. It can be helpful. Does the individual have the mental and physical capacity necessary to express his or her actual interests? If not, why? What's the diagnosis? You may want to have an assessment of decision-making capacity, and the assessment should include intellectual capacity and adaptive skills. But, and I stress this, this is only one piece of the plan. Please be thoughtful as to how much weight you give it. If you do decide to get an evaluation, it should be individualized and comprehensive and identify strengths as well as impairments. It should make recommendations as to the need for support, including decision-making. And it really should determine capacity to create legal designations as a lesser restrictive alternative to guardianship or conservatorship. I can't tell you how many evaluations I've seen that actually don't make any recommendations or say anything about capacity and don't say anything about alternatives. Just you know, say, oh, okay, this person needs guardianship or don't say anything at all. So you know, um, once you do sit down to think about things and just because your person's under guardianship now doesn't mean that you can't think about, well, it might be time to reduce guardianship or to change to a lesser alternative. This is what I'm trying to spark in you, a thought about maybe reducing guardianship. There are a range of options, supported decision-making agreements. You may not be in a state that has a legal supported decision-making law, but we have been informally doing supported decision-making forever with teams that support of supporters. You can use powers of attorney, healthcare proxies, HIPAA authorizations. Under social security regulations, we have representative payees and there are other financial arrangements like ABLE accounts and trusts. And then there's guardianship, which can be full or limited and full guardianships we call plenary guardianships. Also, we can have um, in Massachusetts, we have, for example, substitute judgment authority, like what's known as Rogers. And in many states, there are other things like that as well. 
And in our state, in Massachusetts, we have bifurcated financial authority under the law called conservatorship, which is not requiring a finding of incapacity. And the disabled person in Massachusetts can actually be their own petitioner, which is kind of strange. Um, so supported decision-making agreements is where a, the principal signs an agreement with one or more supporters and decides what areas of decisions he or she would like assistance with. Those laws can potentially protect businesses and the parties to those contracts who rely on them. For example, a bank honoring this contract or a doctor's office. It's important to understand that an individual chooses their supporters and the topics or the issues that they want support. And also that they may choose to ignore the support or advice that they get under this agreement. That's what we call the dignity of risk. So, you know, it's just like you or I seeking advice from friends or family. And once we get that advice, we think about it, we weigh that counsel that we get, and then we, we decide, you know what, I don't think that I want to follow that advice. It was, it was food for thought, but yeah, I think I'm going to do something else. That is our, that's our choice. We can decide not to follow that advice. That supported decision-making agreement is not passing on the decision to the supporter. The principal continues to make those decisions for themselves. So, you know, one of the aspects of supported decision-making that you want to keep clear is that supported decision-making is just another tool in the toolbox. Um, there are some great sample agreements out there. Um, if you go to supporteddecisions.org, that is from our state. Um, it's a great, um, it's a great um, tool. There's a great sample agreement there. And also honoringchoicesmass.com is another, there's another great resources um, source there as well. So finally, healthcare proxies and uh, HIPAA authorizations and durable powers of attorney, which we've had for you know timeless ages, are also documents that you should have and should continue to use, even though they um, may seem like, oh, well, you should have, you know, either those or a supported decision-making agreement. You should actually and can have them both. They're not in either or situation. So you could have a power of attorney and a healthcare proxy and have a supported decision-making agreement. The healthcare proxy is a springing power and it goes into effect when your doctor decides that you can no longer make your healthcare decisions. And a power of attorney in, in generally in you know, most states is 
going to be effective immediately and is available to support you at any time. So, and it's a concurrent authority. So those documents are going to be available as another tool in the toolbox. Um, so I think that, you know, for most people, you're going to have the, the principal is going to have the authority to, or, or I should say the capacity to sign these legal documents and get support in various different ways. And it's important, I think, to have a thoughtful conversation with the person that is being supported. And I go back to the idea of, you know, this meaningful conversation and really wanting to, you know, have voice and choice in this matter. Um, as, as I mentioned, we really, really want to think about having a person-centered plan and making your team remember that the supported person is at the center of this process. And their voice is the most important one. So whether that's you as the person with a disability or whether that is the person that you're supporting. I want to leave you with one more thought. And that is that it's your family and there is no one right answer. And the pendulum swings a lot of times and we are very much in favor of getting rid of guardianships these days. And I love the idea that we can limit guardianships and that we can start taking guardianships away for a lot of people. Um, I love that we have a lot more options now, that we have a lot of tools now, and that people are being accepted for who they are uh, the only reason I think, and I'm going out on a limb here and you may throw rotten eggs at me, that's fine. The only reason that we really need supported decision-making agreements, frankly, is because there are a lot of people out there who are still very ableist and who won't accept a person with a disability making their own decisions in our society. Somebody walking into a bank or a doctor's office who has the capacity to be able to get advice from their natural supports and then go in and make their own medical decision, go into a bank or a, you know a, another company to do business with and make their own decision. It's only because that doctor, that that you know contract that they're going to make with their with Verizon or that you know that, wherever they may be, won't accept their decision because they're ableist and they doubt the capacity of the disabled person. That's the only reason that we need a supported decision-making law. Frankly, that's how I feel. If it weren't for that, we would, we would be okay with the natural supports that we have. So if not for that, 
we would have some people who always need guardianship. My daughter, Elizabeth, was one of those people. And some people who would be okay with natural supports. And of course, healthcare proxies, powers of attorney, and HIPAA releases are absolutely important for those people who need natural supports and who are working with within the natural supports environment. So I'm very excited that we can start moving people away from guardianships who really don't need them, don't need that extreme measure. But there are always going to be people who need guardianship. And we need to accept that families know best. And as long as we keep the supported person and their voice at the center of the team and keep this a person-centered process, we'll never go wrong. And I want to caution us to not be too judgy on each other because, you know, we can tend to be that way, right? Um, And uh, keep voice and choice alive. So, I hope that this has been a helpful podcast for all of you and to take this in hand as you go forward and make your plans for a happy and healthy new year. Please let me know what you're thinking. I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten a lot of guardianship questions over the last couple of months. I always do actually. This tends to be one of the most, um, one of the most, uh, fruitful um, fruitful issues that come comes up a lot. And uh, I love talking with all of you. Thanks for uh, supporting the podcast this past year. Uh, it's been great. And I will be back at the next podcast with estate planning and special needs trust. Talk to you soon. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.